Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. Coming at you live from downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. I'm happy to be here, happy you are with me here on this Monday of Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. We're celebrating Thanksgiving on Thursday, this Thursday in three days. Maybe some of you are on the road already, or maybe you're listening to the archives during your Thanksgiving dinner. Either way, I'm happy you're here. It's neat to be talking to you on Thanksgiving week because one of the great things about this holiday is that we have time with friends and family. And um, it's a very analog experience, isn't it? Very different from the screens and screen-based experiences that we have been encouraged to adopt over these last few years, especially during the pandemic. And this, of course, is a is a segue to the uh, to the interview that I'm going to be uh, introducing to you here in a moment. First, I want to say is another little milestone. Uh, that uh, this happens to be episode 250 of Tectonic, of, of episodes that, um, that I have hosted since the uh, start of the show a little over five years ago. So thanks everyone who has uh, been with me for all or, or most or, or even part of the way. Thanks for, thanks for being part of that journey. It's, uh, it's great to be continuing that with you. And this is, tonight is one of the important um, conversations that we're, we're going to be having on key topics on Tectonic about not, not, a, not a specific deep dive on a technology or a particular billionaire or <laughs> one, one particular challenge or opportunity we have. Rather, this is one of the key overriding themes, themes of the show, which is that the opportunities we have in analog offline life <laughs> so far outstrip what our digital tools can give us. Although digital tools can be helpful, there is still an infinity of uh, experiences and, and types of meaning that we can derive and connection and community that we can derive from analog, that is to say non-digital, non-screen-based uh, tools that's it, it, it's around us, that we're embodied creatures, that we're in the world and have this, this uh, amazing access to this offline world all the time. And that's the, that's the premise of this uh, book that we're going to be discussing tonight. Author David Sachs is back. And if you've, if you've heard that name before on Tectonic, you've, you may have heard it twice before because this is actually the third time David Sachs has been on the show. He's, he's an author based in Toronto. Uh, he was first on Tectonic back in May of 2018 discussing The Revenge of Analog, uh, a book about his uh, tours and, and uh, explorations of various types of analog businesses and communities around the world. You can go back in the archives and uh, listen to that. His second Tectonic appearance was April of 2020, just after the pandemic started, discussing the soul of an entrepreneur. And you'll hear in this interview this evening, uh, he mentions that interview uh, that, <laughs> that took place in the middle of lockdown in April of 2020. And what I didn't know, what I didn't realize, is that during the pandemic, during lockdown, while a lot of us were baking bread, I know I, I took up uh, bread baking uh, during the pandemic, like a lot of people did. People learned skills and took on different hobbies. David Sachs started writing this book. He started writing The Future is Analog. And the way he did it was he interviewed 200 people for the book, and he never met in person a single one of them because of the pandemic. He wasn't able to travel or have in-person meetings with people. So through various, I guess, phone calls and video conference systems, David Sachs conducted, ironically enough, conducted the research on a book praising the analog life uh, through the digital tools, which, as I say, 
are important and, and can be helpful in certain moments. But I think David is saying, and I agree with him, that we should not build our entire society on screens, which is what Silicon Valley and Wall Street desperately want us to do. So um, I'm going to play you this interview with David Sachs, <coughs> excuse me, about his book, The Future is Analog. And uh, that's the context to keep in mind that as we are emerging out of the pandemic, we have to look back at the experiences during the pandemic and say, is that the future that we really want? <laughs> Living behind screens and uh, conducting all of our community and all of our person-to-person -person interactions mediated by screens. Of course we don't. And uh, in a way, the pandemic was a, was a helpful reminder that there is a different way that we may prefer to live our lives. Uh, if you'd like to join in the live listener and chat, go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, and there's already a good conversation going on. That's going to continue throughout the show. Let's go ahead and listen now to my interview with David Sachs about his book, The Future is Analog, here on Tectonic on WFMU. David Sachs, welcome back again to Tectonic. I'm welcome back. It's going to be back, Mark. Well, just so listeners know, this is the third time you've been on Tectonic to talk about one of your books. The first time you were on the show was a book called The Revenge of Analog. And then the second time was a book called The Soul of an Entrepreneur. And this time you're here with your brand new book called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And David, I enjoyed both of the other books, but this is the best of the three. I haven't read wow. the Jewish Deli book, so maybe that one's better. But That future... one's going on my tombstone, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Future is Analog is the best book of yours that I have read. Uh, it wow, encapsulates many of the themes that I have talked about over the years on Tectonic. And in fact, you quote a number of past guests on the show throughout the book. The Future is Analog. You have divided this into seven chapters associated with days of the week. We've got work, school, commerce, the city, in which you're talking about urban design, culture, talking about live performances and that sort of thing, conversation versus social media, and then finally, Sunday, chapter seven is soul. These seven chapters are your learnings that you gained after interviewing I think you said 200 people, right, for this book? Something like that, yeah. And you did not meet a single one of them in person because you did the research during the pandemic. Yeah, I was sitting in this chair or in my next-door neighbor's basement apartment, which was empty at the time, thank God, because my kids were home uh, doing virtual school, and my wife and I would like rotate down there in shifts to do calls. The thing I love about being a journalist and the thing that has always driven me in my other books is going out and meeting people, going places, traveling around the world, having adventures and factories and farms and restaurants and offices and all sorts of you know, vinyl record pressing plants and um, bookstores and just incredible places. And this was like Zoom call after Zoom call after phone call after Zoom call after Zoom call. It was just this ad nauseum. The insights people had were great. But yeah, a lot of the book, the narrative of the book was really based on my own personal lived experience during peak pandemic when I and everyone else around me here in Toronto was sort of stuck inside living their lives on screens in every aspect of life that mattered. Yeah, there are a number of personal anecdotes that you're telling about trying to keep your kids entertained and getting together with friends, with proper social distancing and masks. And as you're writing your experiences, you're drawing lessons. And then you're, you're quoting um, many of these interviews that you had during that time. And a picture emerges that you, like I think all of us, were, were st starting to go a little stir crazy, living your life in a digital world all on screens. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, I think, the thing that became apparent very quickly within days of that first lockdown in the March of 2020 sort of like got up at the end of the day and my eyes were red and I had a headache and my heart was pounding away. And what was I doing all day? I was going from laptop 
to TV, to phone, back to the laptop, to a tablet that my kid had because they were trying to do school online. And everything, everything was being done through the screen. Work, my kids schooling, podcast interviews and, and radio interviews for the book that I was promoting, including speaking with you in a closet for um, uh, you know, the Soul of an Entrepreneur book launch. Um, but also Shabbat services at the synagogue and Passover with my family on Zoom virtual cocktail hours and you know our, my book club gathering on zoom or i don't know some other platform to 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 talk my improv group trying to do improv on whatsapp everything every single aspect of life was done through one screen or another and then at the end of the day what did i do to chill out i went up to netflix and see what it had or disney plus or whatever and very quickly that grew not just boring and tiresome but I ached to get away from it. I ached for something more. I just, I wanted to move beyond that, that this was the future, the digital technology that Silicon Valley, the people sort of creating and selling hardware and software was promoting. In the future, you know, you'll never have to leave your house and everything will be available with the tap of a finger and you, or you just talk to your speaker to, hey, Alexa, you know, bring me this, bring me that. And all of a sudden we had that, but that was all we had. And it was just wildly insufficient for what I needed. And I think most other people needed to live as human beings. Yeah. I've, I find this book so well-timed and so well-positioned to answer a narrative that we were fed during and just after the pandemic, when the profits of the big tech companies all spiraled up. That's starting to change now, but in, in the immediate wake of the pandemic, I'd say so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're recording this in November, 2022. So if you bought your crypto. Oh, gosh. Good luck so, to you, friend. <laughs> um, who knows what's going to happen by the time this airs. But anyway, as of the immediate aftermath of, of lockdown, we were hearing the pandemic accelerated us into our digital future because the future is digital. Now we can, everything that you just said, David, you, you, can, you can use Alexa, you can meet your colleagues on work over Zoom, your, your kids can gain education via various screens. And all of us, all of us who are on the receiving end of this say, well, it's great that we had video conferencing and there's some aspects of this that really got us through the darkest days of the pandemic. But the future, I really hope it's not digital if that's what it is, because this doesn't work for us as humans or communities. I wondered, as you were writing this book, did you know that you were conducting interviews for a book that was going to answer that false narrative of the tech industry? Yeah, I mean, that was that was the goal. What happened was, you know, in those dark days of spring 2020, when I was supposed to be promoting the new book that I had that came out, I was doing just as many, if not more interviews of media from all over the world, newspaper, radio, podcasts. And they were saying, what is the future of analog? Because we're hearing that this is the new normal that there's no going back to the way we lived, that everything is going to be online now as, you know, had been predicted for years. And this was just the thing that shifted us permanently toward that. What do you have to say for that? And I just couldn't see that as a truth or reality. And this book was a response to that. It was really asking the questions, what, what are we actually learning through this crazy experience, but actually, in some ways, a very fortunate experience. Right. And I'm not talking about the disease and people who died and all the horrible things that happened. But the fortunate experience is that we, as a human race, were all able to test drive this particular vision of the future. Right. You never get to sort of preview the future, get in, put in your seatbelt, drive it around the block a couple of times, kick the tires, and be like, yeah, okay, this works or this doesn't. Right. The future just arrives. In this case, for months or even the case of years, depending on who you are and where you're living, if you're in China, you're still locked down and doing everything through a screen pretty much, right? We got to sort of road test every aspect of this and decide within our own lives or within institutions or companies or our cultures or whatever it is, what parts of it worked for us? What parts of it actually made our lives better, more convenient, easier, made our businesses you know, more profitable, resilient? And what parts just sucked what parts 
lessened us? What parts are we grading against, you know, and, 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 and never wanted to do again? Cause it made us realize the deeper value of the analog thing, whether it's a physical space, like a grocery store or a relationship face-to-face that we realized there was no substitute for that. And there was no way that the future of that was moving it behind a screen. Let me jump to near the end of the book, this chapter on soul, because it fits in with, with what you're talking about is, as we realize that there are some fundamental needs we have as humans that were not being fulfilled by this so-called digital future. One of the sections I really appreciated was you're working with your kid. You have two kids, right? You're working with them to get them off the screen and out into nature. You write very strongly about the importance of getting out off the screen and getting out in nature. And you have several recollections of taking your kids out and you're saying they're 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 whining the whole way you know you have to feed them granola bars and that quiets them down but then they they keep whining screaming knock down drag out fights like not physically but like you know at some points literally grabbing their arms and pulling them out the door away from tablets and screens and whatever be like we have to get out of this house now we're going to the park you know we're going on a hike we're doing this and like knowing that it was the thing that they needed because they were going batch in the house and we all were and this is it they were just pinging between screens and the longer they spent in front of the tv watching netflix the longer that they were you know doing homeschool or virtual school on their their school tablets that they were provided the, the worse they were behaving the worse all of us were it was it just we needed something it was like this diet of of halloween candy that first night when the kids are just gorging on the candy, no one's like, oh yeah, this is great. This is your diet for the rest of your life. It's like, okay, now we need some apples. Like let's, we're going to, we're going to cut the candy down and have vegetables. And this is it. It was like overdosing just on a diet of candy and junk food because I felt it myself. Those early days, I would be inside eight hours between screens. And like, I would feel my chest tightening from the stress of being on screens all day, whether those screens were for entertainment, whether they for work, whether they for any other purpose. And, you know, what did I do within like the third day of lockdown? I like, I went out and I went for a walk in the pouring rain and it felt incredible. It was like, I was reborn into the world. The things that I thirsted for every day. And I think most people had some version of this was a connection to the world beyond my screens. I wanted to see things and smell things. Yes, I did crazy extreme things like taking up lake surfing um, or going on long hikes or, you know, crazy bike rides or whatever. And I I think a lot of people picked up all sorts of those sports, camping, you know, the surge of camping because there was a lack of other things to do. But it was even just the normal, like I treasured a walk around the block. I treasured every moment I could just be out in the sunshine. If I bumped into someone in the street, we stood six feet apart and talked like it was the greatest, most wonderful conversation. It was nourishment. And that's what I mean by soul. It's not, you know, religious epiphanies because I'm not particularly religious, but it was that rebirth into reality. And even the religious aspect of it, you know, I tried doing, I'm Jewish. I tried doing Jewish high holiday services online and some of them were beautifully produced and incredibly done. And it was just like, oh, boring. You know, what am I gonna do? Sit here in front of a TV and and a friend invited me to a service in a park. And I sat in a park in a mask, in the sun, in like a jacket, like a sport coat, ridiculous. And, you know, hummed along to a Venu volcano. And it was the most... I've ever felt connected to the sort of religious part of Judaism because there I was in the world with members of my tribe harmonizing and feeling the vibrations of doing that even behind a mask. And it was this, this real thing that I, I didn't even realize I was craving. And that soul chapter also includes quotes from Christian, Buddhist, uh, universalist and, and some others. I mean, various religious traditions are, and they're, they're all saying the same thing that we are embodied creatures and whatever our relationship to the divine may be, it is going to happen 
in our bodies, in nature, in person, in community with other human beings, not through a screen. Every tradition can agree on that, except for you, you did mention that there are some uh, churches and maybe synagogues who are trying to, quote, innovate and hold their services completely in the metaverse or something like that, as though that's the inevitable future. And you're very clear, and the people you're quoting are very clear, that is not the future of any sort of spiritual practice. We have to be in person, not on screens. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, listen, there's space for it. If people get their meaning from that, that's great. If there are individuals who physically are unable to get to church or mosque, um, or the temple, uh, and and this can be done to bring them in touch with their community in some way, then that's fine too. Right, right. But the idea that we can just move our lives entirely into this digital realm, and that's our preordained destiny as defined by Mr. Zuckerberg um, and others, is ridiculous, hubristic, naive, um, and just frankly, juvenile, I mean, and, and, and fundamentally out of touch with what we are and who we are as a species. It's this childlike fantasy of someone who read Ready Player One as a kid. And they're like, that'd be cool. It's not cool in real life. I mean, you look at Meta now, the company is, you know, not doing well. They announced, I don't know, 11,000 layoffs a couple of days ago. The stock is tanking, you know, they're wasting all this money on this metaverse thing that nobody wants. And people are like, oh, well, how did Zuckerberg lose? It's like, I don't know. When when he decided that the future of the world and human connection was like this. You're holding, a, gonna, like, holding a screen yes, right up sorry, to your face. This isn't a video podcast. It's like I'm holding my phone an inch away from my eyes. And like right. that's our destiny. After two and a half years where people are running away from screens because they've had enough, he's like, no, no. I'm doubling down on this. Like, you know what? You can you can change your color of your hair and that'll bring us, you know, in connection. I mean, he talks about this as the the future of human connection is going to be you and I, Mark, talking here, but you're going to be a hologram next to me. And it'll be like you're here. You know what's even better? You actually being here. You know, I get asked, well, are you a Luddite? The, the commonly leveled criticism of people like you and I who dare raise our heads above the trench to question, let alone take a shot at this dominant narrative around the future and around what's good, which Silicon Valley, and I don't mean Palo Alto, I mean the grand eco and economic and ideological sphere that is the industry and ethos tied into hardware and software over the past half century. And that is this incredibly optimistic, altruistic, and capitalistic ideal that technology is a force for good. New technology makes our lives better. It makes us wealthier. It makes things easier. It makes things more affordable. It makes things more efficient. And it is our destiny. And that anyone who opposes that narrative is against human progress, is against that brighter future. And that's the sort of most commonly leveled criticism of people like you and I, who have spent the past couple of years asking these difficult questions. And I reject all of that. This is not an unalloyed good. There are issues with this, and we need to address these issues. We need to look critically at this, because if we take this naive brave new world view of technology that Silicon Valley has sort of built itself around this, this kind of post counterculture hippie Stuart brand, Steve Jobs, you know, this is going to change the world. Um, and we just take that and extrapolate that out into everything. We get what we got during the pandemic, which is like dislocation, inequality, and this horrible feeling that the future we're being sold and are now living in is one that we don't want. And, and what do we do about that? And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. 
My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with author David Sachs, whose new book is called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. We're having a good conversation on the live listener chat. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click Playlist and Comments. If you're listening in the future, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and find the playlist link for the November 21st, 2022 show. Let's return to my interview with David Sachs and hear the second half of that here on Tectonic on WFMU. One of the things I like about this book is that you are taking the pandemic, you're telling a pandemic story, and you're drawing lessons out of that that apply to our future beyond the pandemic. I, I just I want listeners to understand this is not your pandemic story of how we all got tired of being on Zoom, wasn't that terrible, and we all took walks and baked bread. That's not the message that I'm taking away. What I see you doing, David, is you're saying the pandemic gave us a preview of where Silicon Valley wants us all to go all the time for the future, because that is their optimally monetized, controllable society. That's that's the business model. The more you buy from Amazon, the more you ride your Peloton, the more money they make. The less you do, the less money they make. And so the, the pandemic serves as a warning against what Silicon Valley wants to build for us. You're showing this upswell. This is what I want to get to now, because it's this book is not a not just a Jeremiah. It's not just a set of complaints. You're bringing in interviews with people who are building alternatives to the Silicon Valley future, some of which use, by the way, use digital technology. There's nothing wrong with digital technology, but they're building it in support of the analog future, which is where we are going to live in the future, if you and I have anything to do with it, David. <laughs> so my favorite chapter along these lines was the one on commerce. As with the other chapters, you start with a pandemic story. You said, do you remember how when lockdown hit, we were all reaching for our phones to order food over these little delivery apps? People know these, Grubhub, DoorDash, Deliveroo, and Uber Eats, because Uber wasn't toxic enough as an exploitative car service, they had to expand the exploitation into food delivery. And you talk about the business model of exploitation that's built into these delivery apps. Yeah, it, it, it's this fundamental problem, I think, with the sort of prevailing notion of the digital future. That's built around Silicon Valley and sort of Wall Street capital's demands, right? And the venture capital model. And that's success comes from monopoly. And everything, and especially commerce, is a zero-sum game. That Amazon is dominant because it is the biggest and nobody can compete with it. And therefore, the future of digital needs to sort of accept that in those areas. And we saw that you know, Amazon is dominant by far in the world of e-commerce. And the third-party deliveries is the same thing. So what does that, what is that goal, which again is baked into the financial needs of venture capital investors to get, get a 10x or 100x return on a bunch of investments, which is, you know, based around how much money the Saudi royal family needs uh, to build, you know, their stupid city in the in the desert with its flying drones and stuff like that. All of that is baked into this model that's again, there can be no second place. We have to be the only one operating commerce. And so what it looks like in reality is a restaurant doesn't have delivery and the pandemic happens and they sign up to Grubhub or Uber Eats or any one of these services. And all of a sudden they're churning out orders around the clock and sending food out the door and they're not making any money off it. They're not making any profit off. It. They're actually losing money on a lot of it because they're being charged exorbitant fees. These companies are all of a sudden taking their data and replicating it to make their own websites or even worse when they find a restaurant that's doing really well selling, I don't know, Chicago beef dip sandwiches because they saw the bear. They take the data of how many people and who it's ordered and then they make their own ghost kitchen that's owned by Uber or owned by Grubhub with their own brand called, you know, 
cub dip or something like that. And they try to put that thing out of the business because they need to own all the means of production. They need to own everything. That, that sort of Amazon model. They need everything to be under their, their thing. I mean, Amazon will take a product that's selling well and they'll copy it and make their own version of it and then actually put that higher in the search results. So when you look for some cool backpack, all of a sudden the Amazon Basics ones is like $5 less and it looks the exact same. It's this sort of rapacious vision of capitalism that's just horrendous. And yet it's a necessity because the profits are still not there in most parts of the e-commerce world. None of those delivery apps make a profit, which is insane. They're just skimming money off the top of a service and they still haven't been able to make a profit doing it. Let me read something from the book. You're, you're describing it exactly right. And I, I love, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole book. You're talking to someone, Maureen Chakik, a journalist in D.C., you write, told me the playbook of all the third-party del delivery apps was the same. Go in, flood the zone, disrupt this industry with billions of dollars and figure it out, but be sure to take your cut. And then she reveals the really outrageous outcome of all of this, the, the, the secret at the heart of these third-party delivery predatory companies. The saddest part, she said, was that even with hundreds of thousands of desperate restaurants signing on during the pandemic, at the end of the day, there wasn't much of a cut for anyone to take. For all the millions of daily meal orders and brilliant technology, the offices full of Ivy League engineers and MBAs, the billions of venture capital dollars that funded the expansion and operations of all these third-party delivery companies, and the fact that people were literally captive to their platforms for months as the only option for eating something other than their own cooking, None of these app companies managed to make a profit, not one. And you go on and you give some more details. That to me is beyond unethical. It's, I don't think it should be allowed to exist. It should be criminal, in, in my opinion, for predatory companies to exploit the restaurant and delivery people and customer ecosystem to that extent that they're putting independent restaurants out of business, they're paying exploitation wages to the delivery people, they're being deceptive to the customers, and in the end, they don't even make a dollar. It's all for nothing, all of this exploitation. And as you say, it's a great case in point to the Silicon Valley and Wall Street partnership. In a nutshell, all it is is a predatory beast just burning everything down for no good and in most cases, it doesn't even work. Right. I mean, that's, I don't want to say the saddest part, but it's, it is kind of pathetic in that way. And so what's the alternative to that? Right? Oh, oh, I was going to get to that. I'm going to get oh, to okay. that. I'm glad you asked, David, okay, what's the alternative? Because I read this great book. I'll let you the, ask the question. The future is analog. <laughs> because as I said before, this book is not just the Jeremiah it's showing, Which, by the way, is a word that I don't think I've ever heard properly pronounced until this moment. So thank you. I feel smarter. It's a bit of a shibboleth, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So in this chapter, you do talk about this upswelling of support of better alternatives. So there are people working on better options and they use the co-op model, which if I could just digress for a second. The soul of an entrepreneur, which we talked about during the pandemic, a number, a number of things have stuck with me about that book, but probably the, the one that I think about the most from that book is your exploration of the co-op model, that entrepreneurs out there today are rejecting the Silicon Valley, Wall Street, venture capital predatory model, and they're starting up co-ops and the technology, most importantly, is decentralized and owned by a community. It's not owned by one company or one set of investors. And I think that's the key here. Yeah. So the third-party delivery apps, listeners, do not use Grubhub, Uber Eats, or any of those predatory companies. I want you to look Spit up- Spit out your lunch if you're listening to this. Yeah. Just- Hurl it metaphorically into the Hudson River right after your iPhone. You list a couple of different alternatives that have been started. One is called Captain, 
But the one that you said, you said the most promising hope I found for the future of digital restaurant commerce is Loco.coop, a third-party delivery software platform actually owned and operated by restaurants in different cities across America. Tell me about Loco.coop. Do they say Loco.coop every time or do they just call it Loco? Loco, yeah. Um, yeah, Loco Crazy. was interesting. I mean, it was um, this guy, John Sewell, who had a past in the hospital business and sort of owned and operated or, or was a manager in different hospital systems and networks across America. He ended up in, I want to say Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And, uh, you know, when his retirement, he decided to open a calzone restaurant. The restaurant was doing well. And there was um, a, a good local sort of third-party delivery company. You know, the software for these, it's all the same, right? It's like location and this, and you connect to drivers and blah, blah, blah. And, and the company was good. But then it was acquired by Grubhub, which is a sort of on a constant spree of acquisitions of different local and, and national competitors. It's really just a conglomerate that venture capitalists have rolled up. And overnight, they basically got rid of the local customer service team, moved it out to a centralized call center somewhere overseas, and said to the restaurants, okay, we're, your fees are going to be doubled. You're, we're doubling your fee from, I don't know, you know, 10% to 20% or something like that. And John said, what the hell? Like, there has to be a better way. And he had built cooperative models of hospitals for different services or software and knew that it was possible, knew that you could get you know, software off the shelf that could do this stuff and said, well, why don't we just build a local one in this city? And they did. And it worked. It gave restaurants a better deal. They shared the cost of it, but they also shared the profits of it. And because they weren't looking to cash out on the software, that it was just a service that they would all use, they paid far less in fees than they paid to the other third-party delivery apps. You know, drivers got a better deal. And again, it was owned by the community of restaurants. And so they rolled it out to other local communities. It wasn't a nationalized thing. It's like a franchise of a cooperative model. Um, so you want one in Las Vegas? Great. Go gather a bunch of restaurants and here's what it costs to start it up. And, you know, we'll help you with the software and give us a licensing fee. But like, we're not taking a cut of every sale you do. We're not looking to, you know, create ghost kitchens to put your restaurants out of business so we can get another fraction of a percentage more of a return. This software is important. It can help build a community. It can serve restaurants, but it's owned by them. And that is a digital future in a lot of ways, but it's one that keeps the analog world at heart. It's one that's not oppositional to it. I find this a hopeful development that there are teams, there are individuals and teams out there trying to build alternatives to this recently ascendant model of predation from Silicon Valley, whether it's literally a co-op model or in terms of some of your other examples, just a, a company or an organization that acts in a better way, a more ethical way of trying to support the analog future. This book is giving pointers to other ways that we can use digital technology, even technology platforms in order to do that. And it's unusual to come across good, hopeful news <laughs> in tech. And this book has quite a bit of it. One other story that I wanted to dwell on just briefly with you was a local story to Toronto that's, that's right in line with this. A good outcome in tech in which it was a really a, a long-term victory for the community in Toronto and as an example of, of what our analog future is going to look like. This is the story of Sidewalk Labs, that is to say Google, as it tried to invade Toronto's waterfront with a surveillance city. What they or a surveillance neighborhood, what they called a smart city. And you give a, a brief history of so-called smart cities and tell the story of Sidewalk Labs. I have covered this on the show in the past, so longtime listeners will already know the, the outlines of the story. Google came in, said, oh, we're going to build this digital utopia. And then a group of citizens, activists, journalists, uh, and organizers came together and said, oh, no, you're not. You're not building your surveillance nonsense here in Toronto. Get out. And Google left. Uh, it was a great, great victory. But I wanted to ask you, David, and, and, there, and you put in the details for anyone who doesn't know the story. It's in the future's analog. But for, for you, David, I wanted to ask, what was it like for you living in Toronto and seeing this play out? I mean, it was, it was, a, it was sort of a sideshow, right? 
And I think it was more instructive about the attitudes that maybe we had even a couple of years ago towards a digital future and how that changed. Uh, I can't remember when it was that Sidewalk first came in. Maybe it was sort of 2017, 2018, but it was this big announcement. Every level of government was there. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you know, looking handsome and fawning for the cameras as he's wont to do. Every sort of civic leader, business leader lined up along the waterfront with, um, I guess, Eric Schmidt maybe was there. I'm not sure who was sort of there to announce like this last chunk of the undeveloped waterfront. So the most valuable real estate in one of the cities in the world with the most expensive real estate is being essentially given over at cost or below cost to Google, who has come here from their office in New York, uh, where Dan Doktroff, who was previously with the Bloomberg administration, sort of ran sidewalk labs. And they're going to build the neighborhood of the future here in Toronto. And this is going to mean development, jobs, 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 jobs. Like it was, you know, it's like, hey, the mine's coming to town, um, but the digital mine this time. And uh, they're going to do all sorts of amazing things with AI and voice recognition and robots that are going to collect the garbage and drones. And this is going to show us the city of the future. We're going to, you know, it's going to make Toronto world-class, which is something that Toronto, like we have this big inferiority complex as a city. Uh, I think, you know, Drake's helping us get over it and the Raptors when they won the championship, but still, you know, we're always like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not New York. And this was like an instant ticket to be like, you're world-class. And a lot of people, business leaders and, you know, people who are into the innovation economy, like, this is amazing. It's going to put us on the map. And most people were like, wait, what? Like, you're giving this land over to Google. It's next to a highway. That's a ridiculous eyesore filled with traffic. That's literally the concrete is crumbling. We're spending half our annual transportation budget just like fixing the concrete on the stupid elevated highway. We have a city with tremendous growing inequality and the normal garbage cans in the rest of the city are like overflowing with dog poo bags because the garbage isn't collected enough and the design of them, the analog design of them is terrible because the holes are so small that people don't want to put their coffee cup in it because the dog poo bags are like hanging on the edge. And Google is now coming here to like fit things with sensors. No, 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 no. And there was, you know, all sorts of deep work, uh, investigative work by places like uh, The Logic, which is a wonderful technology news uh, platform and website, you know, privacy advocates and Kavukian, who's sort of the main privacy advocate and also Rafi's sister. And I know that. Yeah. Including the Waterfront Toronto, which is the sort of governmental civic uh, business organization that oversees development in the waterfront. And they're like, this is a raw deal. And, and, and Google's like, no, 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 no. But like, we believe in sustainable neighborhoods and look, we're building these things out of woods and it's going to be the experiment. And it's like, no, 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 this is a real city. This isn't some place in the Saudi Arabian desert where we're just giving you money to like build this Potemkin village. Talking about Neom. Everybody's moving there. Apparently it's the hot place. Literally. It's like 150 degrees. You know, this is a real city and what a real city needs is not this drone pizza delivery crap. It's the things that a city actually needs. And what we saw once the pandemic hit, and I think like by May, 2020, Sidewalk already facing this oppositions, like, all right, we're out. Like we, they pulled the plug. They, they, they were already kind of getting rushed out the door and they're like, all right, this is a great excuse for us to, to get out of here. Their, their office is now a budget rent-a-car. So there's the future of cities for you. Uh, but what happened in Toronto and what happened in other cities during the pandemic, right? A city which for years was like, how do we do street food? Uh, I know people have been to Europe and uh, we just can't do it because of the licensing. We're like, okay, uh, every parking spot can become a restaurant patio. And all of a sudden the streets were live with people and the restaurants were out in the street because you couldn't go inside. And it it changed the civic transformation. This is a city that's always like bike lanes. Hmm. We're going to study that. Give us 10 years in a blue ribbon commission and we're going to study it. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, okay, uh, this street's closed, this street's closed, this street's closed. We're going to close this huge boulevard along the Lakeshore called Lakeshore Boulevard every single weekend. And people can like bike and run and rollerblade and walk with their kids. And it was like, oh, this is what we need out of a city. Not sensors, not some savior from Silicon Valley, but actually the things that we always knew would make cities great. It's the things that Jane Jacobs talked about, who lived here and fought for that. And 
Actually, one of the reasons why it's a great city is the things Jane Jacobs fought for when she was living here. But we forgot that. And, and we forgot it for the sizzle of, you know, this idea that like the future has to look like the Jetsons and it doesn't. We forgot that the things that make a city a city is not technology and progress. It's humans and giving them space to act as humans together. That's what makes New York, New York. That's what makes Paris, Paris. That's what makes Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. Name a city. That's what it is. It's it's not the bright new tech. It's the things that are most human about it. It's not the technology. It's the people and it's the community. The analog future comes back to the relationship of people to other people and the community that they build and I really appreciate you taking the time during the pandemic to have all those interviews, do the research and write this book, because this is a strong argument for how we should build the future in opposition to what Silicon Valley and Wall Street want, but also with a lot of hopeful pointers, examples of who we can learn from. The book is called The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World by my guest, David Sachs. David, thank you so much for coming back on Tectonic, and I hope you'll be back for number four sometime. <laughs> thank you, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Uh, if I keep writing books, I hope you'll have me back. And we're back. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the remaining 10 minutes of the show. And then I want you to stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel. He's here. His prog rock show, It's Complicated, is going to start at the top of the hour. Hope you'll take a listen to that. We just heard my interview with Toronto-based author David Sachs talking about his book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. And as you learned at the beginning of the interview, if you were here for that, this was the third time David was on Tectonic talking about a book. And as I said, I hope he'll be back for number four at some point. Always a pleasure to talk to David. And we had a good uh, conversation, still having a good conversation, on the live listener chat board at WFMU.org. You can read it right now. Go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments, and you can see what people are saying. I just, uh, in the few minutes we have left, I wanted to pick up on one of the uh, topics that David and I covered in the interview, and that was this idea of the metaverse that uh, Facebook, now Meta, CEO Mark Zuckerberg has been really strongly, even desperately trying to sell to everyone. Isn't it going to be great when you can float around? For, for a long time, it was these uh, primitive, cartoonish-looking avatars without legs that you could float around. And, you know, as David says, you can change your hair color. Maybe the sea is purple. Maybe you can turn into a flying octopus. All of these nonsensical ideas, and he bet the entire company on that. Well, I mean, as, as we already covered in the interview how ridiculous the idea is, but I thought it, it would be interesting to read you a piece, uh, just an excerpt <coughs> from Vanity Fair, just from a few days ago, November 16, uh, a piece by Nick Bilton called Mark has surrounded himself with sycophants. Zuckerberg's big bet on the metaverse is backfiring. And uh, Nick spoke to some anonymous Facebook employees, current and former, who were saying that Mark Zuckerberg is now surrounding himself with sycophants. And this, <laughs> I mean, this is a, a trend in the news recently that we're hearing these uh, overpowerful over-wealthy tech CEOs are surrounding themselves with yes-men. Here I'm talking also about Elon Musk, who seems to have a, a small cadre of people surrounding him, telling him that all of, all of his, his moment-to-moment ideas and, and impulses for Twitter are so great. I mean, it doesn't seem to be anyone who is telling him no or standing up to him. Or if they are, he fires them on the spot. So that ends up 
giving him quite an echo chamber to, um, to continue his chaos at Twitter. Similarly, Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX, the crypto exchange that collapsed suddenly last week, seems to have not had anyone telling him, uh, Sam, this is really not going to end well. So anyway, back to Mark Zuckerberg. Nick Belton wrote this piece. By the way, this is linked on the playlist at WFMU.org if you'd like to click through and read it. I don't think there's a paywall, so you can read the whole article. But I wanted to read you an excerpt of this Nick Belton piece because, as I said, it, it makes a similar point as what I think David Sachs was trying to make in his book, The Future is Analog. Here's, uh, here's Nick Bilton in, in Vanity Fair. The problem is, as everyone surmised at the time and still does today, no one wants to live in the metaverse. <clears throat> they don't want to go to meetings in a virtual coffee shop on the moon. They don't want to go on dates dressed as a digital porcupine on a virtual beach with a pink ocean. And they don't want to exercise in a virtual outdoor space with their friends who live down the block. If the pandemic taught us anything, it was that technology enables us to connect when we have no other way to reach people. But in reality, in-person connections are way more impactful and important than a digital genus. People want to experience real things now more than ever. And most importantly, they want to experience real people. <coughs> and then continuing later in the piece, Bilton quotes this anonymous uh, former Facebook executive saying, the problem now is that Mark has surrounded himself with sycophants, and for some reason he's fallen for their vision of the future, which no one else is interested in. In a previous area, era, someone would have been able to reason with Mark about the company's direction, but that is no longer the case. And um, I, 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 would, I would agree with that halfway. I mean, clearly the, this former Facebook exec knows what's going on internally better than I do. But um, how can you say that people used to be able to reason with Mark when Facebook was uh, in its phase of, of being complicit in genocide in Myanmar? How can you use the word reason in, in, the, in the same thought as that? But anyway, going back to this this overriding idea in the story that the that, that Mark and the sycophants, whoever came up with the idea uh, and, and is propelling it forward, all of them together, I suppose, this idea that he's betting the company on, the metaverse, people simply don't want that. And the reason they don't want it is what David Sachs was writing in The Future is Analog. We are embodied creatures. We want to be with people in 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 reality, uh, not with a screen in between us. And yes, of course, there are moments when you can and should and, and you really want to use a screen to, as, as uh, someone pointed out on the, on the comment board, maybe someone is sick at home and wants to order a meal in, or maybe they're housebound and they want to order a meal in. Great. Thank goodness we have co-ops like local.coop who can uh, use a co-op structure to deliver meals from a restaurant to someone's home. That's a great use of technology. So this is, this is not a condemnation of digital technology. It's a condemnation of the predatory business models that Mark Zuckerberg and other tech CEOs continue to foist on us and are enabled by their Wall Street partners. And I just hope that we can continue to look for hopeful signs like these co-ops and these other people who are looking for in-person uh, opportunities or at least less predatory opportunities to use technology or not use technology at all and build a better society that way. That's all the time I have for this evening. You've been listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Until next time, friends, you know exactly what to do. I want you to, what is it, friends? I want you to avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Let's go out this week to Cabin Fever in Space by WaveShaper. Keep the faith, friends. We're going to build a better world, and it's going to be full of in-person interaction and non-predatory, non-Silicon Valley, non-Wall Street technology. 
Stay tuned for Dave Mandel and It's Complicated. Have a great week and a happy Thanksgiving. See you next time. Ah, yes, good evening, friends. It's another edition of It's Complicated. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. Delighted, as always, to be here. Thanks for joining me. We open the show, as usual, tonight with Yes. 38 seconds of Yes. That's plenty. Just kidding. And we're going to hear, oh, all kinds of things tonight. I'm going to start out with a band, an Italian band. From uh, from an album, a 1973 LP. Um, this is a group, we're going to hear a group called Jumbo. How would it be pronounced in Italian? How do you pronounce J-U-M-B-O in Italian? I'm stumped. But in English, Jumbo. And we're going to follow that with a Spanish group called Campagna Electrica Dharma from uh, a track from 1976. I'll give, I'll give more details on the other side. But that's what we're going to hear now, I believe, and I'll see you in a few minutes.
Gil fuggeva a ballare il suo sangue. 